This is Poetry Off the Shelf. I am Helena de Groot. Today, the invention of the self. Before everything changed, I talked to Peter Murphy, an English professor at Williams, about a very, very old poem, They Flee From Me, written in the 1530s by Thomas Wyatt. I was worried that no one would be interested in a conversation about an old poem right now. But listening back, I often felt a jolt of recognition. In the 1500s, of course, epidemics happen every few years. There was a viral pneumonia going around, uh, something the English called sweating sickness, with symptoms very similar to those that we're seeing now. Only you die within 12 to 24 hours of developing symptoms. And there was a bubonic plague, which Henry VIII was so terrified of that whenever he had to travel somewhere, he sent surveyors ahead to check on any of the towns en route. And if they found sick people, they were carried out of their houses and into the fields and left to die. Henry VIII is often described as the worst king England has ever known. He inherited a fortune, but blew it all on his fancy lifestyle and stupid wars. He married six times and had two of his wives executed. He was famously paranoid and would turn on his most trusted advisors on a whim. He locked them into the tower and often ended up executing them. One of these trusted advisors was Thomas Wyatt, the author of our poem. Wyatt worked as an ambassador for the court and had close ties to Anne Boleyn. He too, by the way, ended up imprisoned at the tower, twice in fact, but he survived, and each time he went right back to working and writing poems. And one of these poems, They Flee From Me, has kept Peter Murphy busy for almost two decades. In his book, The Long Public Life of a Short Private Poem, Peter Murphy follows this long, long thread from its author, Thomas Wyatt, to his friend who copied the poem in her own manuscript, making a few changes, to the family that inherited the original and stored it in their home library for centuries, to the various printers and scholars throughout the ages who fought over what version was best, all the way to the present, when the poem has become something of a staple of English literature textbooks. So why this poem? Because to contemporary ears, They Flee From Me is not the easiest. If I were to give you a rough summary, a man remembers a time when he was popular, especially with women. But nowadays, they flee from me. It's not the most compelling story ever told, but the story is not the point. It's who's telling it. At various points throughout the book, you, you sort of say that Wyatt, kind of as a person, as a character, uh, makes his appearance in the poem. And that, yeah. you know, that that was a new thing. That maybe before there was more of this sort of anonymous, unified court voice or something. Yeah. You can feel it in Wyatt's poems that they have that texture of introspection, like declarations about the nature of his inner life or the nature of inner life. I like thinking of it as a moment of invention. It's right here. And this moment, let's say it's 1535, though we can't be sure, but it's someplace right right close to 1535. Mm -hmm. You know, 
here it is. Uh, It's the invention of the lyric in English. Uh, That's probably, you know, again, in some fine-grained detail, I don't think that that's strictly accurate, but it feels that way. That's so interesting. I mean, I I think today uh, literature is almost synonymous with inner life, right? Like we see it as the only way, I think, almost to get, I mean, in movies, it's much harder to get to the inner life of the characters, right? I mean, you have to do cheesy things like a voiceover or whatever, flashback. Um, But in literature, that's sort of what it does best. And so can you take me back to what that was before we started doing that? You know, what what were we writing then? Yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting subject, and I think that there's a lot of mysteries associated with it. And I, I think that it's not uh, a kind of continuous and smoothly developing story from, you know, people mm-hmm. inventing language and uh, to the day of Thomas Wyatt and then to our own. Mm-hmm. But in the period right before Wyatt, when we're talking about shorter poems, lyric poems, mm-hmm. um, I think it's it's mostly true to say that the accomplishment that people were interested in in poetry w- was largely as a kind of design. So that the poems about love, for instance, that Wyatt would know that are in English, you know, they're poems that would feel to us to be highly artificial. They have stanza forms that mean that they repeat themselves a lot. And you can feel that some of the satisfaction of making such an object is actually just to do it. Like, here, I made this complex stanza form and look, all the words have appeared in all the right spots. Um, And I I don't think of that as a low form of entertainment. I think that there's a lot of of expressive objects that that have that quality, that, wow, that's a neat thing. Um, Like a Fabergé egg or something where you're like, wow, that's well done. I mean, I don't know what it's for, but it's, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. And I think that there must be, you know, what amounts to a satisfaction in the kind of controlling or designing of things of the process of thought that is in such an artificial poem Mm -hmm. that clearly people liked. I think it feels quite foreign to us. We're much more used to a a more nuanced and flowing um, and even uh, inconsistent picture of inner life. And so with Wyatt, we have a few poems where what feels like the picture of inner life has this kind of dramatic and compelling texture. And it's just so noticeable, especially if you're sitting reading a lot of poetry from the period. It's just so noticeable. Yeah. Could you, could you read the poem? And and I was thinking, because, you know, I, I can't, I don't want to assume that everyone has um, sort of a um, fluency in 16th century English. Um, <laughs> yeah. Could you maybe take it uh, stanza by stanza and sort of paraphrase it maybe as we go along? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So here's the first stanza. They flee from me that sometime did me seek with naked foot stalking in my chamber. I have seen them gentle, tame, and meek that now are wild and do not remember that sometime they put themselves in danger to take bread at my hand. And now they range, busily seeking with a continual change. So I think that some of the, one of the things that people like in this poem is just that magnetic first line. They flee from me that sometime did me seek. You know, it's old English. Uh, it has a little bit of a foreign air, but we can understand that line. Mm-hmm. And then the the evocative air of the poem, the sort of summoning of stuff with naked foot stalking in my chamber. So 
who are they? Yeah. Those first two lines, uh, that's the part that caught me. And I think it's that, that, that part catches a lot of people. And sometimes they put themselves in danger to take bread at my hand, and now they range, busily seeking with a continual change. That's the substance of the first stanzas. It's about change. The second, thanked be fortune, it hath been otherwise twenty times better, but once in special, in thin array after a pleasant guise when her loose gown from her shoulders did fall, and she me caught in her arms long and small, and therewithal sweetly did me kiss and softly said, Dear heart, how like you this. So you have this first stanza about these beings that now are, are gone. And then the, the thing that's gone now appears to be this really beautiful, intimate moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, especially again, if you're reading poetry from this period, this stanza is just, you know, what I want to say, I might be wrong in some very detailed way, but in a general way, what I want to say is there's nothing else even remotely like this. Huh. People love to retell this stanza. They love to just talk about and think about the the sort of intimate energy that just suddenly appears uh, in this stanza, um, which uh, that kind of intimate energy is just so unusual in this period. You know, we've gotten so used to it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's hard almost for me to to hear what you hear because, yeah, yeah. For me, it is it is the thing that we still do, right? Like we we recollect something, and then we will hint at some details to make yeah. it really visual for the one who's reading. You know, her arms long and small, and that is so common to us. That, yeah. W- what is the re- the newest thing about this then? Uh, you know, uh, uh, I think that um, it's the. It's that it feels like an actual recall. Like this is a thing that happened. Yeah. And a lot of poetry in the in the period, I'm not sure people would have been very interested in in doing that. Mm-hmm. That is, an actual recall might even you might even think about it as a flaw. It, it reduces the sort of designed and performative aspect of a short poem about feelings. And, and you can imagine someone thinking, well, no, these are actual feelings. That's that's not what we're talking about. You know, what mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're talking about, as you said, the Fabergé egg. I, wanna, I want something more beautiful and more, you know, abstract mm-hmm. in effect. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if you're reading Wyatt's poems, They Flee From Me, this poem is different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so here's the last stanza. It was no dream. I lay broad waking. But all is turned through my gentleness into a strange fashion of forsaking. And I have leave to go of her goodness, and she also to use new fangleness. But since that I so kindly am served, I would fain know what she hath deserved. I'm not sure you would guess that the poem's going to turn in this bitter direction. (laughs) And I think that bitterness unfortunately, is a really common quality in, you know, the, what is loosely described as love poetry in this period. Uh-huh. There are all these conventions about how men get to complain about women not paying attention to them. Yeah. 
So I think that readers in the period, or people encountering this poem in the period, would have this complaint about her behavior um, is something they would have read a thousand times. You know, the lover's complaint is often a title for poems of that type in this period. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, in this stanza also, it's it's not it's not a very decorative complaint. Uh, it seems unhappily genuine. And <laughs> and the the bitterness is part right. of that no, genuineness, <laughs> right? So he gets into this stanza, and there's just this little. It's the place where I think that people would have felt the tincture of self to be just a little bit too much. But since that I so kindly am served, I would fain know what she hath deserved. Especially that sort of dead rhythm in the the last line. I would fain know what she hath deserved. Uh huh. You know, not very musical. Um, that's, I think, one of the things that gives it its, its sort of unhappy feel of genuineness. Like he just wrote out those words because he was so angry. He, did, he didn't even have time to institute his iambic pentameter. Yeah, that's true. Like it has this sort of um, obstinate feel to it almost, yeah. right? Like he's sort of leaning on every word. Yeah. I would fain know what she hath deserved. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. I, yeah, <laughs> that's ex- I think that's exactly right. That's what I call the kind of dead rhythm of mm. it. And I think uh-huh. what's happening in that line is this, um, it's just an insistence on a feeling that feels genuine enough to be a little uncomfortable. Like, you know, in a conversation at a cocktail party, if someone says something, all of a sudden, you're like, well, look at that. I need to go get a glass of wine or, you know, you find a way to slide out. And so... The poem, as it appears in this very closely related manuscript, it's a manuscript that's being maintained by Wyatt's friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, they changed that line. And I just figure if they changed that line, they knew Thomas Wyatt. They had sympathy with his problems. Yeah. If they changed that line, then something's happening in that line. It clearly made people uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was a little uncomfortable with it now, you know, like yeah. however many centuries, five, you know, 500 years later, yeah. Um, yeah. I thought, oh, you know, doing that typical nice guy thing, like, well, I was being kind and she didn't want me, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. The bitterness um, that shows up. Bitter, yeah. Yeah. I think of that as, um, that's a technical innovation, I think, on Wyatt's part. Um, he's making the poem respond to feeling in a way that people would not have been used to. Can you tell me a little bit when you look at that page today or, or even the, the entire book that this page is a part of, what, what sort of interesting scribbles and 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 drawings um, appear in the margins of the poems. Um, there's this math on the left-hand side, which is um, it's a version of algebra. I had the great fun of getting to read 17th century algebra textbooks to figure <laughs> out, the, you know, the notation, and it, it took a little bit of work to even figure out what's written there. But, you know, again, what what a pleasure to read a 17th century work of mathematics and figure out that that squiggle actually means X squared and so on. Yeah. <laughs> but the math is a sign that the person 
doing the math didn't care about the poem. <laughs> right. Um, and in the rest of the manuscript, this is much more obvious. There are on other pages, straight lines drawn through each of the lines of the poem, and then the page is just covered with other kinds of writing. <laughs> so the person just like is... like struck through, basically? Yeah, simply struck through. So then sometimes the pages are covered in prose. Sometimes there's geometry problems, so that there are triangles that are drawn over poems. And... The idea that a person is sitting with this, you know, a, a book that we now consider a priceless treasure. Yeah. Um, and the reason that it's a priceless treasure is that there's a poem written on the page, that there's a person sitting there with this book who who actually can't see the poem. <laughs> right. So it's exactly the opposite of us. We look at that page and it's like, oh, was there math on the left hand side? I, I'm sorry, I didn't see yeah. it. I was reading the poem. Um, and that seemed to me to be, it's just a really important part of the life of this poem, that there are people and that, uh, uh, you know, my thought is that there's a resonance between that and, and the contemporary world where a lot of people wouldn't be interested in that poem. And I yeah. try to tell that story sympathetically. That is, there's lots of reasons why you wouldn't be interested in that poem and it doesn't make you a bad human being and it doesn't mean that. Um, you're not uh, sympathetic with other humans or that you don't have a nuanced inner life yourself or that you're not interested in the inner life of others. It just means you're not interested in that poem. Um, and so, you know, it's like it's a healthy tonic that you can drink while you think about the history of this poem because there's always this temptation to regard it as some kind of mystified, magical, and holy relic that yeah. and it really is not that it, it's a it's a poem written by a person in 1535 yeah, right right yeah you know if you tried to write about these people who scribbled in the margins sympathetically well you've succeeded because i really yeah such warm <laughs> feelings for them you know this uh, john harrington i mean they're all called john they're harrington. all called john harrington yes many generations so let's just uh, call this guy mp you know because he yeah yeah, yeah the person who wrote there. the math was a member of parliament yeah what, what i love so much about him is that he seems like the antithesis of a poet sort of in in sensibility um he likes math he likes uh well he works in in government he's sort of uh, interested in science and is very practical and so he uses it sort of to conduct his business and to also just write down notes sort of like a to-do list or something you know yeah um and uh yeah one of the things what was it again that that he wrote something like um i helped my friend's son i'm constipated Just yeah. like sort of a, you know, whatever. Yeah. That was also sort of like you say, an inner life, you know, yeah, of a different no, that's sort. Right. There's many, many people who wrote things into this book after Thomas Wyatt wrote in it. But John Harrington, who's the person who wrote the math, he wrote mm. really a lot into this book. He was a judge. He was a, a, a magistrate. And there's addresses to juries that are sketched out in this book. And... What I ended up thinking about yeah. as I meditated on Harrington's lack of interest in the poems, his diary, and his daily life, is that in this really broad way, there's a generic resemblance between his diary and the poem. That is, somehow the writing out of the things that happened to him, some of them very intimate, You know, not very appealing. Constipation is not, you know, generally a great subject for a lyric poem. But 
that there's a resemblance between his urge to write out the stuff about himself. Just the, the, These are things that happened to me. Mm. Um, that there is a resemblance between that and the work of lyric poetry, which is somehow yeah. the writing out of an account of inner life uh, makes us feel that it's more manageable or that it is more... Maybe it makes it more thoroughly a thing of the past, if that's what we want, or it makes it more understandable. And so that relationship between writing and what amounts to self-understanding, or just the management of, of everyday life, is not entirely different from Thomas Wyatt's use of that book. It's just really different from Thomas Wyatt's use of that book. Yeah. I mean, that's a gorgeous way of looking at it. And it really um, seems to be exemplified also in the way that the, the MP um, or the, the judge, John Harrington, um, how his son used that book. Yeah. Um, he used it sort of yeah. to learn how to uh, write, right? Like he, he was a yeah. little kid and had a tutor and he had to sort of, you know, do his alphabet and stuff. And and what is so lovely is how you describe that this kid was, was maybe not, you know, the most interested in school and... That he sort of would draw these monsters in the margins. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I I find that part like you. I find that part really beautiful, actually. And yeah, um, you know, in my general feeling that poems are things that people write because they have reasons for writing them. Like Thomas White, it could be in some ways about his job as an ambassador or his desperate hope to stay alive and tutor England. Um, <laughs> And that, again, there's this kind of generic resemblance between that and little uh, Will Harrington. There is finally a Harrington who's not called John Harrington. You know, this little Will Harrington making drawing this little monster in the manuscript. You know, there's a kind of habit of mind where we think, well, you know, it's a kid and he's just drawing a monster. But, again, it's that act of sort of getting something out of your head and onto the paper and then you look at it, you know, and it's done something for you. Something that was inside your head is now out there on this piece of yeah. paper. And so, again, it seems like it's a good companion for the poems in that book. It's, it's you know, it's, it's the same kind of movement of the spirit. Now that the manuscript lives at the British Library, which bought it at the end of the 19th century, uh, you know, now it sort of lives its museumified existence, yeah. right? Like it, it can no longer be uh, doodled in, let's say. I mean, it, of course, it's great because now it's public and you know, exactly. people with the right accreditations can go and consulted and stuff and yeah. write books about it that's cool but um yep. but it also yeah in, in a way yeah. it's now dead yeah and i think i'm really happy that that manuscript wasn't destroyed uh, in the course of its long centuries and i'm really happy that will harrington drew a monster instead of making paper airplanes with the with the page that they flee from me was written on and so on so 
Yeah. I'm happy that it was preserved, and I'm happy that I can see it, and, and the, my ability to see it is entirely dependent upon the kind of mummification that happens to that book in the British Library. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, uh, the uh, it, it, it's, it's fun and interesting to think of people using that manuscript as a legitimate human activity, you know, that they're interested in that book, that adding things to it was their way of participating in the kind of general life of this book that had all these interesting things in it. So, you know, there's the two sides to it. It gets saved for us so that I can call what the British Library did to it this sort of vaguely derogative term, mummification. Um, So, (laughs) you know, I'm entirely, I really understand that irony, but it does seem like it that it's important to register it. You know, I went to the British Library. I went there several times to look at this book, which is a neat experience. One time I went, I had done all the things I was supposed to. I had sent email beforehand and presented my credentials, and I had a little card and so on. But on this day, which is the last time I looked at it, they somehow the library just... I just didn't seem legitimate enough to them. And I had to go speak to another person, you know, who was off in a different room. And this person, uh, I was, you know, saying what I was doing. And and this person actually said, looking at me, I guess, you're a professor, she said. And I thought, wow, all right. Well, I, you know, in some ways I'm happy that uh, somehow I could be misidentified as something maybe more interesting or glamorous than an English professor. But at the same time, what is it about me that you know, makes me seem like a person who shouldn't be allowed to look at this uh, you know, ancient manuscript? They did eventually let me do it, but they made me wait like three hours just to make sure. I oh, God. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's also really interesting about your book is that you sort of... Um you show what it took for someone to gain access to that book, you know, and like in the 18th century, uh, you write about uh, Percy, who was the self-made scholar, um, this kind of careerist guy who's great at introducing himself and and seeming very important and sort of making that self-fulfilling prophecy. And um, he's, he's the person who actually finds, I mean, we're, we're skipping over a whole lot of history here, but, you know, we're, we're just going to have to because of the time, you know. Um, But he's the first one to sort of reunite the idea of the poem with sort of the original manuscript of it. Yeah. And so you write that he marks up the book with this little code to basically indicate, okay, this is the manuscript that it comes from. This is the page in the original manuscript that it comes from. And so you write at that point that Percy decided to write in the book rather than who knows, like write a paper about it or something, you know, because he couldn't, he didn't have the sense of institutions that would sort of provide a continuous security that his paper with his findings would actually stay with the book, you know. So he thought, okay, let's just write in the book. Yeah. And what I what I was wondering about, what your sense is about that, you know, now we've, we sort of, the pendulum has swung in a completely other direction, right? Like we... We're so reliant on our institutions and and even just like the way that we digitize stuff. It seems like we're so confident that these digital copies, that they're going to be around, you know, or that we'll uh, always have the capacity to read them. Do, Do you feel like we do too much of that, that we're risking our heritage in a way? 
Well, you know, there'd be other people who'd be much smarter about that, but my instinct is yes, certainly. And, you know, there's the, I, I'm not the only person who has noticed things like, you know, the, the wonderful interest that's available, for instance, in the letters of people who lived in the past. So mm-hmm. where's that information going to be? You know, will that be on hand? It's all in email now. Actually, it's in text or no, I don't know what it's in. It's in a tweet that disappears. So um, one of the, I think, really, I don't know, it's a beautiful uh, insight available through the history of this manuscript. This book sort of calmly, it's, it's a stack of paper that survives for 500 years. And yeah. and it just does. It, it survives, you know, the unbelievable and bitter carnage of the Tudor world. It survives, you know, its owner getting his head cut off. Um, that is Thomas Wyatt's son got his head cut off in the rebellion against Queen Mary. And then it just wanders around. It ends up in a family library. We might think of a family library as a place that's, you know, uh, I don't know, sort of unofficial and dangerous, but it, it, that, that turns out to be an incredibly secure location for it, even though people are using it for all kinds of other things. Mm-hmm. And so it just makes its way in one way or another. And so there's something about the survival of, of a physical object in the story about the poem that I find really, uh, it's just kind of great that it's, it's because it was an object that means it could have gotten lost, and it's because it was an object that it didn't get lost. And so there's something really beautiful about that story that it's just some paper. And yet, this stack of paper is, you can go see it today if you have yeah. the right credentials. <laughs> and if they if believe you. Look you. Professorial. Yeah, if you look professorial enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you write somewhere um, that the study of literature for you has always been connected to the study of everything. Hmm. Um, and I, I really love that. I mean, it's so true about your book. And, uh, and you know, it made me think about, you know, those kinds of books that are like uh, the history of sand or, you know, or hmm. something like that, right? Or the history of paper or whatever. And then it's, of course, it's not just the history of sand. It's the history about human beings, you know, and yeah. sand is just sort of the excuse, you know. Yeah. Um, why do you prefer to do it through poems? Well, you know, I think for one thing, I think that when I began this book, which is in the year 2000, right? It's a really a long time ago, actually, from a personal <laughs> yeah. point of view. I think that there was actually a surge of the kind of books that you mentioned. And I really liked those mm-hmm. books. You know, I was really interested in them. And so I, I, I think that that feels like a kind of accurate observation about, in some ways, the source of the shape of the idea. <laughs> There's... Roland Bach, the French literary critic, has this neat moment at the beginning of a book called Essed where he, he talks about a certain Buddhist practice of conjuring a, a landscape uh, out of the skin of a bean. Um, and it feels a little bit like that, that you take a, a little bean and you conjure the whole world out of it. <sighs> yeah. But I think that doing such a project with a poem is... Some of the satisfaction of it is that the a, a poem is about human beings, and you know even this poem, written so long ago, the some of the interest of this poem is that 
It was written by Thomas Wyatt, who was a courtier in the court of Henry VIII. And Anne Boleyn got her head chopped off. And the story of Anne Boleyn is a bizarre and interesting and terrifying one. Yeah. And so it's just the that to tell a kind of extended story about this aspect of English-speaking culture using a poem, it just allows you to talk about the, you know, the, the pains and pleasures of being a person uh, at every moment, in, in essence. And, and so, you know, as I was working on it, you know, my feeling was like, who wouldn't want to write a book like this? I mean, you know, it's just like, <laughs> it's just like the perfect thing because uh, for one thing, anything could be absorbed into it. You know, so, so yeah. for, for almost 20 years, Everything I thought was, you know, I would think, can this go, you know, can this go in, in the book? <laughs> yes. Oh, here's something about ink. Well, there's, I, maybe I should write a thing about ink. And <laughs> the lives of people are so interesting and the attempt to imagine the intimate texture of lives of people who lived long ago is both interesting and I think really good for us. Um, and... And and the record to to think about the long history of people trying to assemble their inner life, just that mm-hmm. daily struggle, you know, that we have. You wake up and you think, "Wow, what a great day! I'm doing so great today." By afternoon, it's like, "Gosh, what a terrible day!" And <laughs> yeah. you know, I really feel I've lost control, and uh, the thread of my life has just you now frayed and. Then the next day you're feeling good again. The, to be able to talk about that texture through over this long period, it just was so rewarding. It was so rewarding and so interesting that when I finished this project, I was sad. I mean, I you know, there was just like, gosh, yeah. I wish there was more history. Maybe there, is there a century I forgot about that I could, you know, just go backwards and think about more. Peter Murphy is the author of The Long Public Life of a Short Private Poem, Reading and Remembering Thomas Wyatt. Before that, he wrote a book about the tension between poetry as art or livelihood, focused on the romantic poets. That book is titled Poetry as an Occupation and an Art in Britain, 1760-1830. He's a professor at the English Department of Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts, and got his education at John Hopkins and Yale. He's currently at work on a book about storytelling, but he warned me that it could be another 20 years. You can find They Flee From Me and more poems by Thomas Wyatt on the Poetry Foundation website. The music in this episode is by Todd Sigafoos. I'm Helena Le Groot, and this was Poetry Off the Shelf. I hope you're still going strong. Thank you for listening.